The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we give you the A to Z of the magazine ABCs, from Airfix Model World to Zoo. Plus, Radio 1 gets down with the kids as the top 40 gets set to embrace streaming. And we talk TV with Rebecca Nicholson and the shows everyone's talking about. That's right, House of Cards, The Smoke, and the big reunion on ITV2. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week is uh, Mr. Mike Souter, the Chief Executive of Shortlist Media and a man who knows a thing or two about the magazine business and by Media Talk regular, in fact, media pretty much everything, Maggie Brown. Welcome both. Hello. Hello there. Mike, you're joining us down the line from Shortlist HQ, which I'm imagining is a bit like, uh, do you remember Drax's uh, waterborne hideout in The Spy Who Loved Me? Yeah, you've, you've obviously you've obviously seen the uh, layout of this place. Yes, no, it's a, it's a, the throbbing evil HQ um, of our freemium empire. And Maggie, how's your how, how are you, Maggie? How's your week been? Oh, it's been quite fun, really. Gardening, actually, some of the time. Gardening. <laughs> oh, well, we'll get onto that later. Done any gardening, Mike? Oh, not lately. No, <laughs> a bit too wet, frankly. Right. Wading rather than gardening. <laughs> Right, well, let's get uh, to an area Mike knows a bit more about, which is the uh, latest magazine, ABCs. Uh, In a nutshell, it was good news for good housekeeping, which overtook Glamour to take the number one spot in the UK women's monthlies, print copies at least. And it was even better news for TV Choice, which had a five-year high after it picked up sales from the closure of Richard Desmond's short-lived TV pick. On the downside, it was not so good for NME, which dipped below the 20,000 sales mark for the first time. It used to sell 300k, don't you know? And FHM, the once mighty beast of the men's sector, which fell below the 100,000 mark. At its height, around the turn of the century or so, it sold more than 600,000 on the back of cover stars like a scantily clad Gillian Anderson. Mike, was that one of yours? Well, the scantily clad Gillian Anderson was, and I don't have the figures in front of me anymore, but normally those were imprinted on my mind as the editor at that point, and that was 1996 we had Gillian Anderson on the cover, and I think we sold... 340,000 copies at that point. When I left in 1997, FHM had had broken through the 500,000 mark, and I think it's absolute high point under the editorship of Anthony Nogueira. I think the number actually started with a nine for a single issue. Obviously, across the six-month ABC spread, I think it, 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 the, the number probably started with a six or maybe even a seven at that point peak of 900,000 plus. Well, you haven't got to start with the men's sector, Mike, or, uh, uh, although you can, and obviously we'll talk about your, your, your freemium title shortlist, which is, the, which is the, the number one in the sector, but what, what were your thoughts on, uh, on last week's figures? Hurrah for good housekeeping, um, and hurrah for the good sense of the magazine buying public, I have to say. Um, I think good housekeeping is this brilliant example of a title which serves an enduring need it's a magazine that's allowed itself to constantly be updated. It possibly got the worst name for a magazine <laughs> in 2014, but it's possibly one of the best magazines that's there on the newsstand. And it does what it does in a way which is not patronising. It has fantastic authority. It's got a real warmth. And, and for me, there's no doubt that, that there's a really loyal and growing audience there partly because they're not being served that content and that advice and that authority by anything else. And I think when you, when you look across the magazine sectors, 
some of the magazine sectors which are in decline, some of the, the famous titles which are in decline, are not in decline because they're, they're bad magazines, they're poor products. They're in decline because the audiences that they're serving have more choice about where they're going to get their information and entertainment from. But in Good Housekeeping's case, between them and Woman and Home, which is another really strong performing title, this time from IPC, they really have that market cornered. Maggie, as Mike said, Good Housekeeping was a good news story, but it was a tough time for, for a lot of the magazines. Yes, but I, I think he's absolutely right about Good Housekeeping and, indeed, uh, Women and Home. They actually do offer good consumer advice and also excellent recipes, and just they get under the skin of the mature woman. The thing about magazines, though, is that they're expensive. I think that um, one of the problems that they do face is that um, there may be multiple readers of certain copies, certainly in the hairdressers I go to. But, I mean, Mike's a freemium producer. I I think that 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 is a, a problem for some people. The way Good Housekeeping in particular have got around it and other magazines from that that particular publishing houses, of course, uh, by offering cut price subscriptions. And um, all the people I know who take good housekeeping, uh, including my sister, uh, they've all taken advantage of the the cheap offers. Um, Mike, I mentioned NME there at the top. What what have you made of that? It's been a a, a long decline, of course, and uh, this, uh, I think it's sort of about uh, 18,000, 19,000, if you include digital copies, the second half of last year. So it's sort of another unfortunate record achieved, as it were. I think, in truth, if you really went back and looked at the stats, I think the NME has been in decline since uh, just after Nick Logan was the editor. So, you know, you're probably, it's 60 years old. It's been in decline for 30 years. But I think, I think what's powerful about the NME is the kind of brand resonance. So it's still, regardless of how many copies it physically sells, it's still an, an incredibly influential title for particularly British bands that, that, that want to break through. So there's still definitely a business there, and there's, there's still certainly a really powerful brand. It's just through, partly, as Maggie says, very high cover prices, which then drive sales volumes down, and the ability for, for consumers to get access to you know, the bands that they love, the music that they love, not just through a media channel like the NME, but directly via social media and other means to the artists, it means, it means it's, it's, a, it's a difficult business model now to sustain in print. But where does it go next, you think? I mean, NME Radio came and, and, and then it went again, so they have to look to extend the brand online. And they've got a big website, of course. I think they claim sort of 3 million people a, a, a month are kind of accessing the NME brand. But uh, what do you do with yes. it? Yeah, and, and what they also um, claim, although the, the figures aren't publicly available, is that their digital revenues continue to rise. And certainly, if you look at it from the outside, there would certainly be evidence of that. So does the NME have a future as a, an exclusively online brand? I suspect it probably does. I think it, I think it probably has traction. Is there a place for carefully curated content which might appear or, you know, in print, which might appear, um, you know, on tablet editions and in other places. I suspect there is. Is it a weekly print title? It's difficult to see how it can sustain itself if you just look at that that model on its own. It, it must really be on life support now. 
And men's health is in uh, is in good health, but the men's sector generally down. But of course, Mike, you're too. Uh, well, you got shortlist, of course, one of your your freemium titles at the top there, yeah. and um, stylist, of course, Sister Magazine. Where next with the the, the balance between the free titles and, and the paid for titles? Are we, are we going to get another sort of big paid for launch, or is the? I mean, I think you had some interesting stats about the the volume of the of the men's market, which is now free as opposed to paid for. I think what we're seeing is within magazines and within magazine businesses, I think we're now seeing the era of mixed ecology business models. So you've got some titles like our own, Shortlist and Stylist, which are proudly completely free. And the the underpinning business model, the way that we distribute, the way that we um, create content and the way that we market that is all built around from scratch the idea that that we're going to be delivering to a large number of people, the right people at a high frequency. There are other models there which are some paid, some cheap subscriber copies, as, as Maggie said, some um, you know, um, monitor free distribution there. There are some which also then add in digital editions over, over and above that. And I think in order to kind of not just survive but thrive, I think what you're seeing is magazine publishers who've, who've maybe been kind of reassured by the, by the continuing profitability of their titles, even during some quite tough times over, over the last few years, I think you're starting to see them wise up to the idea that, that they've absolutely got to try and create businesses from distributing what they do on different platforms and making that accessible, whether that's paid for at the same price as they would charge somebody for it for a physical edition on a newsstand, whether that's 20% for a digital edition, whether that's free because they're giving it to the right people in the right way, I think uh, what you're seeing is is a real sea change now across the entire industry. It's not just kind of pioneers or outliers um, like ourselves. Mike, isn't it harder for magazines that have been paid for, like Time Out, for example, to go on the free model? I mean, what's your judgment on, on the wisdom of, of paid for going free? I think it's a difficult adjustment to make from straight paid for into straight free. You have a lot of baggage to take with you. I mean, I think Time Out is a really excellent example of a magazine which grasp the opportunity to go free because it is it's regional in its appeal our, our magazines are, are distributed in 13 same edition 13 cities up and down the uk for time out it's it's london only but because of the kind of magazine that it is because it's got a really clear proposition for consumers this is stuff to know about when you go out in london i think it's been a pretty successful transition from one to the other it's also, and I'm sure they would admit it, it was a gamble, it was, but it was the last throw of the dice. Their future on the newsstand, they were becoming so small, was just unsustainable for the very large cost base that they've got there. You know, they employ a lot of people to, you know, do listings and to check all of those things. So I think Time Out, I think, will, will, will be a successful example of a paid-for title going free. It's difficult to see any others doing that, though. Okay, thanks, Mike. Well, I should say there'll be more magazine ABCs in approximately six months' time. Uh, But radio, and we found out this week that the official UK chart, which you uh, may listen to on Radio 1 on a Sunday afternoon, is going to take account of streaming data for the first time from services like Spotify. They've been doing this on the US Billboard chart for uh, since 2007, uh, where they also started taking uh, YouTube into account last year. This move over here was revealed by the Radio 1's head of music, George Ergatudis. Mike, what's the thinking behind this, do you think? And what, what are the dangers? Is there, is there a risk here? I think the, the, the Radio 1 chart 
has always been a for the music industry and for and for radio broadcasters it's always been this really happy coincidence that what's good for one is good for the other and so the idea that that you could measure the popularity of somebody by units sold was kind of very reassuring very lucrative for everybody involved that model got broken 12 to 15 years ago and i'm surprised it's taken this long for the chart to decide whether it's measuring sales, which may have nothing really to do with popularity, versus popularity itself. It's really long overdue. You know, there's been plenty of examples in the past of quite terrible, terrible records that that really weren't the most popular records, but they ended up at number one because people bought them for novelty purposes. Still fuming over Joe Dolce keeping Ultravox in Vienna (laughs) off the top spot. I, I say, I say, hurrah! Oh, but Maggie, I, I, you know, personally, I would be disappointed if Bob the Builder had never been the Christmas number one. So I got to disagree with Mike there. Well, um, so, so do I. I think a bit of fun is allowed. I mean, and also, come on, it might be bad records, but they all songs. But actually, if they're popular, I thought that was what you were arguing for: popularity and frequency <laughs> of play, not just uh, sales or anything else. But where I'm with you is, of course, it's sensible if if you have to follow your audience here, and uh, provided that the statistics are, how can I put it, robust and, and, and they're fairly uh, measured and everybody's treated the same, then uh, it seems to me um, just obvious, really, that it should have, it should have happened before. Uh, here's, here's my point when it comes to streaming. So let's just take Spotify, for example. Spo- Spotify you can either use for free and then you are also made to um, listen to the adverts that they'll put in there, or you can pay for Right. So I pay for Spotify every single month. I pay for the convenience of having whatever I want whenever I want it and to be able to also listen to it um, uh, when, I'm, when I'm offline as well. Now, I would argue, I wouldn't argue that, that uh, my listening to um, uh, Happy by Pharrell Williams counts more than somebody else who'd listen to it on the normal Spotify service. I think we both really love Happy by Pharrell Williams. Um, it's just I've I've paid um, uh, for the privilege and the other person hasn't. Okay, Mike. Well, we leave it there. I, I, I'm off to stream Ultravox's greatest hits and, uh, <laughs> and the new album by Suzanne Vega. But uh, anyway, Mike, lovely to have you on. Thanks very much. Thank you. The media landscape is shifting, but what changes matter most in 2014? Disruptive technologies, e-commerce, mobile opportunities, big data and the web, personalization and diversification, the rise and rise of branded content. We're exploring all these topics and more at the Guardian Changing Media Summit. Mixed with hundreds of top media professionals, tap into the latest trends and thinking and hear from top companies including Airbnb, LinkedIn, BuzzFeed and B-Sky-B. Big issues, big ideas, big inspiration at the Guardian Changing Media Summit on the 18th and 19th of March in London. Find out more at theguardian.com forward slash Changing Media Summit. Maggie is still with us and it's time to talk TV now. Uh, specifically, we're turning our attention to uh, media regulator Ofcom. Uh, Ofcom's chairman, um, Colette Bow is stepping down at the end of March. And last week, the Royal Television Society had a dinner in her honour. She had plenty to say, and uh, more importantly, uh, Maggie was there. But let's start with hearing what she had to say about the future funding of the BBC. Contested funding, well, as you know, you'd expect me to say this because I'm a, an economist of sorts. Um, there's a lot to be said for contested funding um, on competition grounds. 
And that's, of course, been the great debate over many years. The counter-argument is, once you start stripping away chunks of funding and saying that's contested, you weaken the stability of the institutional settlement. I have got some sympathy for the idea that some of the funding that um, is currently available for PSB, some more of it should be contestable because I think on the whole I'm on the side of the people that think that what we need in our sector is even more competition and dynamism and innovation than we have got and therefore I would quite like to see more contestable funding. But I do understand, I'm not daft, and I do understand that that does mean that you kind of weaken the institutional funding base of the main, of, of the BBC. And that was Colette Bow there talking to Peter Bazalgette. Maggie, so she came out fairly strongly there in favour of uh, the fact that the licence fee should be available to, to other broadcasters. She didn't say who, but presumably Channel 4 and, you know, A and other. Well, she did. I, I mean, she was, I think, arguing in perhaps a sort of more abstract way than perhaps uh, actually saying this must happen. But it is unusual because in her five years at Ofcom, as chair of this very, very powerful regulator, she has been careful really to keep a very low profile and to appear to let the politicians do all the talking about media regulation. So it is a moment when someone in her position actually comes out and says what she thinks. She also carried on by saying that it was going to be quite hard, a technological challenge for the BBC anyway, to collect the licence fee because as we know, more and more people however slowly the percentage goes up, uh, are actually going for broadband connections only for, for, their, for their media, entertainment etc. And further David Abraham, the chief executive of Channel 4, was asked if he would like some of this uh, contested funding. Would he be up for it? Never say no. <laughs> Never yeah. say no. And uh, he said that he didn't want funding for the programming because of editorial independence, but that there was a case to be made, perhaps, for subsidising distribution, digital distribution the argument goes that traditionally over the history of the BBC and, and indeed uh, other public services, including Channel 4, that the spectrum isn't charged for, although it is a real asset. The value of that is declining because of all of the digital innovations, etc., different ways of distributing iPlayers, 4OD, all the rest of it. And he said that the figure that he put on the cost of this extra side was about £100 million. So that's the kind of debate that's taking place. That's what he liked. And I think it's important that people listen to that clip because I don't think people outside of this sort of little world of, of, of regulation quite understand that if someone in Colepo's position says this, clearly there's a lot of discussion going on behind the scenes really about what should happen next. She did make another point which I would just like to say very briefly. She mentioned the rather dreadful experiments of the um, independently funded news consortium which was the kind of final idea really before the Labour government collapsed in 2010 in, in, in the election and, and the whole thing was pulled and she said that the actual bureaucracy in deciding who gets money would be pretty terrible and this is a factor to bear in mind if and when contested funding or contestable funding, you might say sharing the BBC licence fee, I think that's, uh, if, it, if it really does become a live issue after the 2015 election. OK, well, you mentioned Channel 4 there and David Abraham. And uh, Channel 4's big show of the year so far, Benefit Street, uh, came to an end this week. Uh, the documentary series itself had already finished last week, but they uh, 
their final uh, well, went out with a bang, I suppose, with a live debate hosted by Richard Bacon with some of the people from the show and various people like Alison Pearson and, and uh, John Bird, founder of The Big Issue, to kind of look back on the series and say, was it a good thing? Where and do we go a, next? And there was a short half hour before as well, uh, giving you a catch up on some of the figures who have, who have been featured. It actually turned into really just the the kind of um, white D show, to be absolutely honest. Uh, very few people were actually around to talk about. That will reflect on, 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 on what has happened to them since the programme had gone out. How do you actually, look back on the series, Maggie? Uh, well, I actually think that there are big flaws in it. I, I've held my fire on it because I think the opening episode really shocked me uh, in the way it showed you basically how to shoplift successfully. And it just seemed to me to be... Uh, it's all very well... You, you could say that that could be part of a drama, but this was happening in real life. I'm also rather shocked at the way some of the children have been portrayed. I mean, the, the parents have given permission, obviously, but I, I do believe the Reverend Stephen Chalk's point about the bullying or, or them being scared to go to school, which which one of the prominent critics was not on the debate. I thought the debate was not actually as balanced as it might have been. I, I think it was disappointing. I thought there was far too much of, uh, of White D or Deirdre, as we have to call her now. Um, I was surprised they didn't have people from either the school or the street who have apparently been bitterly opposed to the way that the, 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 um, the street's been depicted. On the plus side, I, I think that something very good has come out of this. And it was really the John Bird point that... Uh, it is now becoming quite apparent that people are just hooked and then uh, unfortunately trapped by benefits and there isn't really any helping hand or ladder out of their predicament, even people who apparently wish to do so and better themselves. And Bird's points, which have been made a lot in in places like the Daily Mirror, were made very well in the programme. And of course this Channel 4 debate, Maggie, came a a week after Channel 5 did um, a benefit street of debate of their own and had another one this week. Well, this week they had a a debate on... Uh, immigration, and I have to say, both debates uh, knocked the spots off the Channel Four program. They were, had a much wider range of experts, and they also had a great deal more involvement from the audience. And this time, they had Nick Ferrari, the LBC host, in in, in control. And uh, I think, if I was the BBC and Question Time executives looking at, at, at refreshing current affairs, I would take a look at that format. Okay. All right. Well, um, also TV this week, uh, Linda Laplante revealed that she's making a uh, she's writing a se- uh, prequel. I should say, to uh, Prime Suspect, which we set in the 1970s, 1980s, and we'll find out exactly how Jane Tennyson uh, became the woman she was and we first discovered in 1991 uh, on ITV, of course. Prequels, they're the new sequels, definitely, Maggie, with the Endeavour uh, and, and what have you. Indeed, Inspector Morse, yes. And, uh, is this, does this excite you or does it, uh, are you really. a resigned sigh? Not really. I think it's a resigned sigh. I mean, I think it's, it's a run for, uh, for cover, for safety, for using a, a respected writer who is expected to be able to slip on the glove easily and then the viewers can all kind of sit back and say, oh, yes, this is nice, you know. Uh, and it's, That's a good thing, surely. And, it, and it's clearly kind of, well, I think we do need a little bit more challenge in television and not continually always being invited, if you like, to step into not exactly nostalgia, but a kind of sense of, um, oh, well, you know, you know what you're going to get. And yeah, that's fine up to a point. But it's it does seem sometimes too like the sort of, how can I put it, pension plans for established writers. OK, well, next week's media is what's going to be a prequel when... Uh, <laughs> When I'm still in primary school, so I look forward to that. Uh, and um, I should add, I think I'm not sure ITV have actually commissioned it yet, but uh, that will be the natural home if uh, if it does eventually come to air. And uh, also this week it was BAFTA's time, the film awards, not the TV ones. A good year for Twelve Years a Slave, uh, and there was a good turnout from the stars. You know, Tom Hanks, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, uh, uh, Jolie, Leonardo DiCaprio. 
and Angelina Joni, no, no, not, not quite so well known. Yes, and they were all let down, I felt, by None Stephen of them Fry. No, oh, Stephen Fry. I over was, to you. Uh, I thought he was a really bad uh, host. And right from the start, when he stumbled over his opening, it, it's one of those performances where it's all about him, you know. So when Jeff Pope shares the uh, honours for Philomena for writing the script, um, he says, oh, I hope he doesn't make him too expensive because he's doing something for my company. I just sort of screamed, really. I thought that the... the and all his gags about Emma Thompson, which, oh, uh, you I know... I thought they were awful. Entirely fact, lost on a large part of the audience. I I thought they were awful. And I must say, I thought our two fine actresses who were giving awards, um, Emma Thompson and Juliet Stevenson, I thought they... I thought they performed with absolute immaculate grace. I thought they were actually the un- some of the unsung, if you like, stars of the show. I felt really proud of them. But yes, it was a good turnout by the stars, and clearly some great awards, and indeed for uh, Channel 4, who backed uh, 12 Years a Slave. But overall, I was terribly glad when it finished. Award shows, I'm not speaking about the Brits here, because at the time of recording we haven't seen them, but... They're flipping boring, aren't they, Maggie? I mean, you can, you can, these, in the olden days, this would be one of the few chances you get to see these stars in the flesh, you know, talk in person. But, you know, nowadays, you know, George, Robert De Niro's turning up on Graham Norton show every other week, you know, for instance. I mean, it's like, uh, uh, they do, I think they need new hosts. They need freshening up. Steve they Coogan should do. host it, I think. He'd be fine. In character. In character. In every character. <laughs> God. Uh, all right, Maggie. Now, I know you're looking forward to this because uh, we're, we're a man and woman alone here. But finally, this week, it's time for Media Monkey Mastermind. Oh, no. Uh, three questions you can pass. Okay. Uh, which magazine was sold for one pound this week? Oh, yes. That's very sad. Reader's Digest. It's a strong start. You're right, yes. Uh, which, when I was a kid, I'm getting very nostalgic here, Maggie, but that was a powerhouse. Yes, it was, and, and it used to sell over a, a million copies. And I think it's it's had the benefit of very good editors. Uh, Jill Hudson, for example, who's, who's one of our hot uh, editors. I, I, th- I think the whole thing is utterly mismanaged and tragic. It's been bought by Mike Luckwell, who previously yes. invested in Bob the Builder Creator Hit Entertainment. Yes, sort and of, of course he was... Can he fix the... it? Let me finish, maybe. Can <laughs> he fix it? Yeah, you go, <laughs> go on, over to you. I don't know if he can fix it. Can he fix it? Uh, right, question number two. Which programme is the World Service about to take global? Oh. I've started, Newsbeat. so you'll Newsbeat. finish. You've yes. got it, Radio 1's Newsbeat. Newsbeat. For, 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 for teenagers. That's yes. it, yeah. Which is uh, a good idea. It is a good idea. Uh, yeah, I'll have a news bulletin with a music background. In fact, I, in think, background. I think the whole... I mean, the World Service has been kicked around, as we know, and we know it's been bullied by the Foreign and Colonial Office for decades. But when I read this speech yesterday, although it, clearly there are many, many questions about commercialisation, I did think that it, it showed that there had been a thorough rethink, really, of, its, of, of some of its services. And, um, OK, question number three, Maggie. Good. How many people watch the return of the Great British Showing Bee to BBC Two? Feel free oh, to take a guess. Not me. I don't know. And I don't care. Well, Maggie, well, <laughs> you don't get this on Mastermind, do you? Uh, well, I guess I'm not... Uh, uh, I can't well, stand these these homey sort of uh, how to do things. Maggie, are you a bit grumpy this week? I'm a bit grumpy. Uh, right, uh, three point one million. Three point one. Yeah, That's very big good. Hit. It's gone up from yeah. the makers of Benefit Street. Indeed, they, they, indeed. They, they, they don't say it. Well, the they they also do Great British Bake Off too, don't they? BBC Two and Great British in the, uh, the front. Yeah. I think it is time for BBC Two to have a new controller. It is well, as if by magic. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll talk about that again in a future episode. But for now, Maggie Brown, thank you very much. Right, it's time now to plunge into the TV lair 150 feet below the surface of the earth uh, with Rebecca Nicholson. Hello. Hello. I like the idea of plunging. It makes me think that it's like the, the set of Splash or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know much. if you've seen the end of Splash where they have the synchronised dancers and sort of it goes a bit strictly and they all do a dance and then jump off into the pool. It's a bit like that. I feel like you've jumped off the high board into the TV lair. That's exactly what I've done. But there's no water. <laughs> 
But there is a soft mattress. Yeah. So well, I'm all right. Cush- throw cushions. You've seen the end of Splash? I've seen... Yeah, it was on on Saturday. I watched I telly, John. I know, yeah, but all the way through. I'm... <laughs> At the rate you're going with your Netflix shows, you'll be watching Splash in 2017. Yeah, there'll be a, a massive drought crisis by then. They'll be like, ooh, <laughs> look at all that water. They used to swim in it. <laughs> Outrageous. Skipping into a puddle. Yeah, yeah. So what's on the Nicholson set-top box this week? I watched Blandings for the first time. Have you see, Did you see the first series of Blandings? I'm not going to mention my father in every podcast, but he watched it. <laughs> did he? Did he like it? Uh, he was all right, yeah. He's a big P.G. Woodhouse fan. Oh, I see. So, so he should have liked it, shouldn't he? Well, he's he's going to have a strong opinion on it then, in that case. I think case. that was the first programme he's ever watched on the BBC iPlayer. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he's finally got his Wi-Fi working. Well, I think he should maybe watch the second series too, because I, I hadn't seen it before. I'm coming in at the second series, but it really made me laugh. I didn't expect it to. I thought Sunday night BBC One comedy, probably not going to be that funny. But it's A safe it's, assumption. I mean, it's very, it's very, very silly. But it's got Jennifer Saunders, Harry Enfield, um, Timothy Spall... Tim Vines in it. Just lots of silly people being quite silly with posh accents. And Harry Enfield in particular is playing a lord. I think he's the lord of Dunstable or something, one of those, something Dunstable like that. Dunstable in my hometown. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he's just, it just made me laugh. Well, that's Very all you silly. want from a Sunday night comedy, isn't it? It's all you want from a Sunday night comedy. I, I'm feeling quite generous this week, so. Okay, can um, I borrow a fiver? <laughs> No, but I will tell you if your jokes make me laugh. Good. Because <laughs> I'm really, really easy to make to make laugh this week. All right, well, I'll, I'll get out some of the low-rent ones and <laughs> keep the good ones till next See, week. See, I'm going now. <laughs> Already going. So, Blandis, yes, uh, Harry and Phil. God, that's a really BBC show, isn't it? Harry and Phil, Jennifer Saunders. Oh, it's so you know, BBC. Some might say they're stars of a certain age. So BBC. But, I, enjoy, I mean, I love Jennifer Saunders. I, certain era, I meant there. Sorry, it wasn't ageist. Yeah, I love Jennifer Saunders anyway. I think, yeah, as I said, I'm feeling very generous anyway, but there's something that just is so brilliantly silly about it and everyone's kind of doing their best silly stuff. It's just good fun. Do you remember Celeb? No. With Harry Enfield in it? I don't remember that. Based on the private eye cartoon strip. Was it? Worst sitcom ever. What, what era are we Him talking? Him and Amanda Holden. <laughs> That's say no more. What, late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, I don't yeah. think I saw it. My era. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back when you had to watch it linear. Not binge watching. No, nothing like that. Talking of which, uh, mm. should we do? We're going we're gonna to turn the tables now. Not just because you're having a slug of water, so I shall carry on speaking. But House of Cards. Very smoothly done. House of Cards. I have not managed to see this series of House of Cards yet because we're You've doing. Been watching Blandings. I've been watching. I've been very busy watching Splash. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have been busy. I've been away. You haven't got to keep saying it. No, no one I know, said, I know. I feel no like... one said you're lazy, Nicholson. <laughs> but the problem is, we're doing a series and a recap blog for every episode on the. TV website and I keep having to read it before I've seen the episode oh. so I know what I know what's happened in the first few episodes already which makes me less inclined to but I do really like it so that is my plan for whenever I get out of this TV lair whenever you give me the keys and allow me to leave it's a long way up <laughs> I watch it and I quite enjoy it but I more watch it out of a sense of duty than a do sense you? of expectation it's, yeah. it's funny isn't it because at the moment it feels like everyone's saying it's the greatest show of all time ever and people are really going crazy for it. But it's from not. what I remember, it was just really good fun the first time around. It was really kind of hokey, and but good, good a lot solid of the, fun. A lot of the politics, you know, this might reflect poorly on me and my interest in stateside uh, government shenanigans, but, you know, a lot of the politics is frankly lost on me. Perhaps I should be making more effort. Yeah. But I'm quite tired. I do like a, an evil woman, though, and Robin Wright is very good at that. She's very good. Yeah. In fact, she probably steals the show from Under Space's nose. I think she does. That's why she got the Golden Globe. I like it when Kevin turns to camera. It <laughs> always gives me a thrill. In fact, I had dinner with Kevin Spacey in Edinburgh. Oh, did you? Me and about 100 people. <laughs> 
A message to Netflix. I never got my free subscription. Right. Uh, next, <laughs> next up. Next up, let's talk about The Smoke. This is a Sky One drama about firemen, oh, firefighters. Yeah. I'm being very sexist. Firefighters. There is a lady firefighter in this. I mean, that whole thing was just really sexist. <laughs> I lady her a lady firefighter. <laughs> Anyway, it is because I remember London's Burning from when I was a kid. I used to watch, I was allowed to watch London's Burning and it was a big thing. And there's been a few American firefighter dramas since, but I don't think, as far as I can recall, we've had any British ones for quite some time since London's Burning. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why. Some might say there's a reason for that. Yeah. Why? What is, is it because it's expensive? Uh, No, it's a bit boring. Oh, right. Well, kind of emergency service dramas are a bit, you know. Well, Holby City's had a good long life. Exhibit A. Why not? (laughs) Millard. Casualty. Um, this is a Sky One drama. It stars um, Jamie, Jamie Bamba, Battlestar Galactica. He's gorgeous. Who, yeah, but he's but he he's always Battlestar Galactica's Jamie Bamba to me, and I find it really weird to hear him going, "Oh, I'm in my end down the station putting out some fires." Is his accent that good? <laughs> with some lady firefighters. <laughs> oh, because he really is. He's is uh, you know of this ilk, isn't he? He's British. He is British, yeah. But I find it quite weird to hear him talking with a British accent. It's very watchable. Lucy Kirkwood has written it. Who wrote Chimerica? So, which all listeners won't be reminding. What's that? It's that play. It was a big play. Yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't have this on front row. You could say Chimerica, and everyone would know exactly what you meant. Well, producer Matt's heard of it. <laughs> Last play I saw was Feston. Ah, very good adaptation of the film. When was that? Approximately 2000. <laughs> it was very good, though. Well, she is a hot young playwright. And this is, yeah, I don't know if this is her first TV thing, but it's quite a good name to have. It's just really watchable. It's just one of those, I think all emergency services dramas, as you say, do tend to stick to a, a vague formula. It looks nice. They've obviously spent a bit of money on setting things on fire. And yeah, big I, bangs. Yeah, I found it very, I could easily imagine watching this every week. You don't necessarily need to engage with it on too deep a level, but it's quite fun. Uh, yes, and um, producer Matt tells me Lucy Kirkwood also wrote for Skins. Oh, she course. did. Okay, so it's not her first TV thing. Yeah. So, Which, again, TV Skins had good, a lot of good writing in it. I think people talked about Skins in a way that suggested they weren't really watching it because they just thought it was this raucous teenage thing. And actually, for the first three series in particular, I thought, had some really good writing and really good storylines. And that's The Smoke, which is on uh, Sky One. Sky One on Thursday. Excellent. God, this is almost like some kind of user-friendly uh, TV guide. <laughs> And uh, next up, you got one more for us? I've got one more. Edge of Heaven, which is on Friday on ITV. In, Wham. In the Benidorm slot. Oh, no, no. <laughs> well, see, I think Edge of Heaven, uh, possibly because it's, um, it's a film, isn't it? Is it a film? Yeah, it is a film. It's a Todd Haynes film. Yes. So I think it's, I was expecting something, I don't know why, in the Benidorm slot on ITV on a Friday night. I was expecting something kind of classy. And this is very much... Friday night Benidorm slot but again as I was saying I'm just really easily amused this week and I found it quite funny but then I found Benidorm funny I think Benidorm has a lot going for it well I mentioned I, I sort of spluttered wham didn't I at the start of that which some people might not might, might, I just fell over or something but uh, <laughs> apparently it's called Ed, Edge of Heaven it wasn't just my <laughs> sort of joke landing unfortunately but uh, because it's set, the, the hotel it's set in is, is like a 1980s themed hotel see I just thought the decoration was very retro well, producer Matt, who's, producer Matt's muscling in on this episode terribly, but he says that uh, sound like Matt Wells there is like an impression almost. But uh, he tells me that becomes more apparent in future episodes. I see. When Andrew Rizzi turns up, <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's true. Okay, so talking about nineteen eighties themed things, uh, I think we're going to talk about one more uh, show, yeah. which may have 
people from the 1980s. The big I mean, reunion. It, it doesn't. You've got to skip forward another 10 years. It's the 90s. I'm sorry to ruin that, that seamless link. link. <laughs> but it's the 90s. The big reunion on ITV2. And again, I'm coming into this at the second series. I missed the first one that I was aware of a lot of the chatter around it, but I didn't see it. Does it still make sense? Yeah. Oh, right. well, this is my era. You see, I remember all, all these bands. So this is kind of my era. But so it's pop bands from the late 90s. Who, so it's what, Oasis? Yeah, uh, yeah Oasis, <laughs> Cast, <laughs> Blur are on it. No, um, Girl Thing. Who? Who? They were Simon Cowell's Spice Girls equivalent. And they crashed and burned really spectacularly and expensively. And obviously the premise of the show is to get them back together and then they do a big concert at the end. But it's so dark. This is darker than Breaking Bad. I'm willing to go on the record and say the big reunion, darker than Breaking Bad. It's, it's so bleak. Is one of them a meth dealer? <laughs> well, Times are hard. I wouldn't want to. No, <laughs> I don't know. I doubt it. But all these storylines, I mean, it just goes to show how horrible fame really is and how unpleasant it is. And they well, all... Because of where they ended up or well, the relationships? Or? And I think even the process of it is not very nice. Every, you know, you, as a pop fan in the late 90s, you just think everyone loves each other and it's all very glamorous. But now that I'm older and a bit more cynical, I know it's not quite like that. And the big reunion just lays it out. This is not a nice world to be in. It's horrible, it's cutthroat, and you will be chewed up and spat out. And it's really bleak and funny, actually. And I realised that part of the reason why I found it funny is because Peter Robinson, who is also known as Mr. Pop Justice, he's helped out on the script. So there are quite a few gags in the voiceover from Andy Peters where I think I recognised that joke. (laughs) So are there other bands not as famous as Girl Thing taking part? Or is that to be revealed? Um, No, we've had two episodes so far. Another one on Thursday night. So there's Girl Thing, Damage... (laughs) <laughs> Vague memory. Didn't one of them go out with uh, one of the Spice Still Girls? Still does. Oh, really? With a baby Spice. I hope um, they're married by now. Make a... I don't know if they're married, but they've got kids. So, oh. you know, it's, I think it's, they're in it for the long haul. Young people today. And then last week was A1 and brilliantly Eternal. They've got a story to tell. That was fantastic. And then this week, they've put together all of the people that spans either solo artists or their bands didn't really want to get back together. And they formed a super group. And that's got Kavanagh in it, Dane Bowers, Gareth Gates... Adam Rickett and someone else who I can't remember. It's I like mean, you're just reading out a phone book, you know. It's just, these are just do, names. Do these not? You don't remember tearing these pictures out of Smashes? I remember Ricketts. <laughs> well, because he didn't he stand as a Tory councillor? I think he might have done. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and now A1 he's on the big well. reunion. A one, the only band to be named after a, a major arterial road. They were brilliant. They accused Noel Gallagher of being jealous of their success at one point in last week's show. I love it. I just think it's such a, such a brilliant show. And then they don't put them back together, so they tease it. And then the end of the episode is them talking about being in the same room as each other for the first time in 15 years. And then I think that comes later in the series. Brilliant. So that's on Thursdays too? ITV2? Thursdays, ITV2. For now, Rebecca Nicholson. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our guests who are Mike Souter, Maggie Brown, and of course, Rebecca Nicholson. You are most welcome to leave your thoughts on our blog, or you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. And who knows, in fact, next week I guarantee to read out at least one of those tweets. Media Talk is produced by Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. 
Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today. No credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.